0: In 1973, the UCLA Bruins won the last of their seven straight national championships. Despite there being many great college basketball teams since 1973, very few of them have won back-to-back championships, let alone seven straight. From 1973 until today, only two college basketball teams have won back-to-back national championships the 1991-92 Duke Blue Devils, and the 2006-2007 Florida Gators. Back-to-back national championships put them in elite historical company. They managed to do something that other great teams could not do. The 1976 undefeated Indiana team, the 1984 Patrick Ewing Georgetown team, the 1990 UNLV Running Rebels, the 1996 Rick Pitino coached Kentucky teams, none of those teams could do what the 92 Duke Blue Devil and 2007 Florida Gators did, and that's win back-to-back national championships. But which team is better? Who would win between the 1992 Duke Blue Devils and the 2007 Florida Gators? That's what we're going to find out on this episode of Versus. You play to win the game. all the non-believers, anybody can be beat! The best ever. I'm the most brutal and vicious and most ruthless champion there's ever been. Hello? You play to win the game. I'm Sonny Liston. I'm Jack Dempsey. There's no one like me. I'm from Nairclaw. There's no one that can match me. I'm handsome. I'm fast. I'm pretty. And can't possibly be beat. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. Can't wait! In 1991, The year prior duke defeated one of the greatest college basketball teams of all time in the larry johnson stacy augman greg anthony anderson hunt unlv running rebels unlv was undefeated they were the defending national champions and they were annihilating every team they faced duke managed to beat them and went on to win the national championship the 1992 duke team returned almost that entire squad they only were missing one player from the 91 team the starting lineup for the duke blue devils were bobby hurley at point thomas hill at the two guard at small forward it was either grant hill or antonio lang grant hill started the season at small forward but towards the end of the season and into the tournament antonio lang started at small forward and grant hill came off the bench Brian Davis was the power forward and Christian Leitner was the center. Cherokee Parks was a key reserve off the bench. He was a center. So this 1992 Duke Blue Devil team is a battle-tested team, not only from the previous year's title run, but in the 1992 season, they faced 11 ranked teams and lost only one of those games. And in that game they lost, their starting point guard, Bobby Hurley, broke his foot. But despite the injury to point guard Bobby Hurley, which caused him to miss a number of games, Duke went on to win the ACC regular season title and they won the ACC tournament title, defeating a powerful North Carolina team for the second time out of three matchups that season. North Carolina went on to win the national championship the next year, FYI. Moving on to the NCAA tournament, Duke defeated a tough Seton Hall team led by Terry DeHare in the Sweet 16 before playing Kentucky and Jamal Mashburn in what is commonly considered the greatest college basketball game ever played. Duke beat Kentucky by one point in overtime on a Christian Leitner turnaround jumper at the buzzer. If you haven't seen that game, it's on YouTube. Do yourself a favor, it is an amazing game. Duke then went on to beat Bobby Knight's last great Indiana team, which featured Calbert Cheney, Allen Henderson, and Damon Bailey in the semifinals. And in the national championship game, they beat the Fab Five freshman Michigan team, Chris Webber, Juwan Howard, Jalen Rose, Jimmy King, and Ray Jackson. On the season, Duke went 34-2 and those two losses came in games where Bobby Hurley was injured or out with a broken foot. With their entire team intact, Duke did not lose a game in 1992. After a surprise run to the 2006 National Championship, Florida had three NBA prospects, Corey Brewer, Al Horford, and Joakim Noah, who were all but guaranteed to be drafted in the top 10 of the NBA draft. But when Corey Brewer decided to return to Florida instead of going to the NBA, Al Horford and Joakim Noah decided to join him and run it back to see if they could win another national championship. They were the odds-on favorite going into the 2007 season. After two early losses, putting their championship hopes in some question, Florida ran off 17 straight wins to win the SEC regular season title. They lost focus at the end of the season, losing three of their final five games. But once in the SEC tournament, and then in the NCAA tournament, Florida never lost again. The 2007 Florida Gators played eight ranked teams and went seven and one in those games. Florida finished the season 35 and five. For the 2007 Florida Gators, their starting lineup consisted of Torian Green at the point, Lee Humphrey at shooting guard, Corey Brewer was the small forward, Joakim Noah was the power forward, and Al Horford was the center. Chris Richard was the first man off the bench. He was also a center. So to determine who would win in this matchup between the 1992 Duke Blue Devils and the 2007 Florida Gators, we're gonna look at a number of factors. We're gonna look at each team's talent level. We're gonna look at each team's offense versus the other team's defense. So the Duke offense versus the Florida defense, and then the Florida offense against the Duke defense. We'll look at some intangibles, then we'll play out the game between the 1992 Duke Blue Devils and the 2007 Florida Gators. The games I watched to prepare for this episode, for Duke, I watched them play the number seven, St. John's, which featured the late, great Malik Seeley. He basically single-handedly carried that St. John's team to a 10-point loss. They would have lost by probably 30 if it wasn't for him. The number 18, Michigan Wolverines, featuring the aforementioned Fab Five freshmen, Number 23, Florida State, which had future NBA players Sam Cassell, Charlie Ward, and Bobby Sura. The number nine, North Carolina Tar Heels, with Hubert Davis, Eric Montross, Derek Phelps, and Brian Reese. Number 22, LSU, which had Shaquille O'Neal, future NBA Hall of Famer, one of the greatest players of all time. The Rodney Rogers-Wake Forest team. And then as mentioned before, the number 19 Seton Hall, number six Kentucky, number five Indiana, and then again in the national championship game, number 15 Michigan. For the 2007 Florida team, I watched their game against number 12 Kansas, featuring future NBA players Mario Chalmers, Julian Wright, Darrell Arthur, and Brandon Rush. Tennessee with Chris Lofton and Wayne Chisholm. Number 10, Oregon, with future NBA player Aaron Brooks. Number 7, UCLA, with Aaron Aflalo, Darren Collison, Luke Baamute, and freshman Russell Westbrook. And finally, in the national championship game against number one, Ohio State, featuring Mike Conley, Greg Oden, and Daquan Cook. Let's look at each team's talent. So to determine talent, we're going to give points in a number of criteria, points for the round a player on that team was drafted, so two points for the first round, one point for the second round, points for the number of years a player on the team played in the league, so one point per season, points for the number of all NBA teams a player on a team made, and it's five points per selection, and then points for any player that made the Hall of Fame. And that'll be 10 points. And I went with the All-NBA team instead of an All-Star team appearance because the All-Star team is more about popularity rather than whether or not a player is one of the best players in the league. Usually the All-NBA team features the best players in the league. So for Duke, we start with center Christian Laettner, who was a super versatile big man, maybe the most clutched college basketball player of all time, and definitely one of the greatest college basketball players of all time, top 10, maybe even top five. He was drafted number three overall in the first round by the Minnesota Timberwolves and played 13 seasons. He didn't make any all-NBA teams, and he didn't make the Hall of Fame. For a total of 15 points small forward grant hill who was a versatile wing who could really do it all offensively and defensively he was drafted in the first round number three overall by the detroit pistons he played 18 seasons in the league and made five all-nba teams grant hill also made the hall of fame giving him a total of 55 talent points point guard bobby hurley was a traditional point guard who ran the offense and on the defensive side pressured the opposing ball handler. He was drafted seventh in the first round by the Sacramento Kings. Bobby Hurley played five seasons, which in and of itself is amazing because his rookie year, early in his rookie year, he got into a devastating car accident and it was believed he might not ever play again. So to say that he played five seasons, it's saying something. But we never got to see how good Bobby Hurley could have been on the pro level. Power forward Brian Davis was a defensive specialist. He was drafted in the second round by the Phoenix Suns. He played one NBA season for a total of two points. Oh, and Bobby Hurley had seven points. Two points for being a first-round draft pick and then five points for five seasons. Antonio Lang was a versatile wing who could drive and shoot. He was drafted in the second round by the Phoenix Suns and played six seasons, giving him a total of seven points. Thomas Hill, also a versatile wing, was drafted in the second round by the Indiana Pacers. He never played a game in the NBA, so he gets one point. Cherokee Parks, a center who was the first big off the bench, was drafted in the first round by the Dallas Mavericks and played nine seasons. On this 1992 team, however, he was a freshman and he didn't contribute as much as he would in later years at Duke. Cherokee Parks has a total of 11 talent points. And backup guard Eric Meek was drafted in the second round by the Houston Rockets, giving him one point. So that gives Duke a talent point total of 99 points. Let's look at the 2007 Florida Gators. Joakim Noah... Was a defensive post player who could also score around the basket. He could guard out on the perimeter. Was drafted in the first round, number nine, to the Chicago Bulls. He played 13 seasons in the league and made one all-NBA team. He also was the NBA's Defensive Player of the Year that year. But I'm not assigning points for Defensive Player of the Year, though it is impressive. So Joakim Noah has a total of 20 points. Al Horford, the center was a low post scorer and defender. He was drafted in the first round, number three overall to the Atlanta Hawks. Al Horford is currently in his 14th season in the league and has made an all NBA team, giving him a total of 21 points. Corey Brewer, a lockdown perimeter defender who hit big clutch shots when Florida needed it, went number seven overall in the first round to the Minnesota Timberwolves. He played 13 seasons in the league, giving him a total of 15 points. Torian Green was a defensive point guard who could also shoot the three. He was drafted in the second round by the Portland Trailblazers and played one season in the league, giving him a total of two points. Chris Richard, the first big off the bench for Florida, was drafted in the second round by the Minnesota Timberwolves and played two seasons in the league, giving him a total of three points. And finally, their second big off the bench, Maurice Spates, was drafted in the first round by the Philadelphia 76ers, number 16 overall, and played 10 seasons in the league. On this Florida team, Spates was a freshman and was really the fourth big man, so he didn't have as much impact as the three bigs ahead of him. So all added up, Florida has a talent point total of 73. So Duke's talent points was 99, and Florida's is 73. By this metric, Duke has the more talented team. Now let's look at 1992 Duke's offense versus the 2007 Florida's defense. Duke averaged 88 points a game, which was 11th out of 298 teams. Basically, Duke could score. Every starter averaged in double figures. Duke was led by senior 6'11 center Christian Laettner, who averaged 21 points a game and eight rebounds. Duke had an extremely versatile offense. Duke could play inside, getting the ball into the post to Christian Laettner, or they could play from the outside, dribble penetrating with Grant Hill, Antonio Lang, Thomas Hill but Duke was even more versatile than that. Not only could they play outside in or inside out, they could also invert their offense, meaning they could take their center and pull him out onto the perimeter and put a guard or a forward in the post and play on the inside there as well. They were able to do this because Christian Laettner was just as effective out on the perimeter as he was in the post. Christian Laettner could shoot, he could pass, he could drive as well as the traditional post-play of a big man. Because of that, Duke was able to play various offensive sets and adjust to whatever the defense was doing. Duke could run a motion offense, but they could also play four-out-one-in, meaning four players on the perimeter with one post-player. And then within that possession, they could switch out who that post-player was, depending on the matchup. So if Christian Leitner had a bad matchup in the post, so, for instance, in the game against LSU, when Shaquille O'Neal was guarding Christian Laettner, Leitner could come out to the perimeter and Thomas Hill or Grant Hill or Brian Davis would go into the post. And when Shaq didn't come out on the perimeter to guard Leitner because he was trying to guard the basket, Laettner could shoot from the outside. This was also evident in the first Michigan game where Jawan Howard and Chris Webber were giving Christian Laettner and Brian Davis a lot of trouble in the post. Leitner and Davis weren't able to score very easily. So Duke was able to bring Leitner out on the perimeter, and it opened up Michigan's defense. Pretty much every player on this Duke team could drive and shoot, and they took turns attacking the defense based on their matchups. And most of the players could post up. The exceptions to these being Brian Davis, who couldn't really shoot, You you didn't want him shooting, and Bobby Hurley, who I can't remember ever seeing him post up. But otherwise, the pieces were pretty interchangeable. Duke could run four out, one in. They could run one four high. They could run a one two two set. Their offense was just very versatile. Additionally, Duke was a good shooting team from three. They shot 43% from the three point line as a team, which is ridiculous. Duke would score a lot of points in transition as well. And we'll get into that more when we talk about Duke's defense. So Duke's biggest strength on offense was its versatility, but its biggest weakness was against size in the post. In the games against North Carolina, Seton Hall, and Michigan, big front lines gave Duke problems scoring in the post. However, with their offensive versatility, Duke was able to overcome in all of those games except they lost the North Carolina game when Bobby Hurley broke his foot now let's look at florida's defense florida allowed 63 points a game which was 43rd out of 337 schools florida mostly played man-to-man defense but they also played a lot of 2-3 zone just a base 2-3 zone they'd usually switch to the 2-3 when their man-to-man wasn't working a lot of times it seemed like their man-to-man concept was to rely on their individual defenders to guard their man. But in a good man-to-man defense, your man looks like zone, so there's always someone there to help, so that a ball handler is always seeing two defenders, even though it's man defense. The idea is that the help defender would come over to stop dribble penetration and then recover back to their man. Many times during the games that I watched, Florida did not do this. There were so many times that one of their defenders got beat on the perimeter and there was nobody there to stop them from an easy layup or a dunk. It it started happening so much. I, I started to wonder, was this on purpose? Was this just their defensive design? Did they have so much confidence in their individual defenders abilities that they decided not to help? I'm really not sure. I can't imagine that they would be doing it on purpose, but you you never know. This lack of help defense was most evident in the Tennessee game, and no surprise, Tennessee went up by 27 points on them in that game. Florida managed to bring it back to a 10-point loss, but Florida was the much better team and should have won. The same in the Kansas game. Mario Chalmers and Julian Wright pretty much had their way with Florida's defense. And this was another game that Florida lost. But even in the games that they won, in the Oregon game in the NCAA tournament, you would see these defensive breakdowns in that game. Now, Florida had great individual defenders. Joakim Noah, who was a great post player, blocking a lot of shots, very strong, could play positional defense, as well as get out on the perimeter and guard. He actually won Defensive Player of the Year in the NBA. Al Horford, who also in the NBA made an all-defensive team. At Florida, was a post-defender who blocked a lot of shots. And Corey Brewer, who was the SEC Defensive Player of the Year in the 2006 season, and he led the Florida Gators in steals. Torian Green was a plus defender as well. He was a good defender. When Florida's defense was playing well, they forced their opponent into tough shots. And as Florida was a great rebounding team, They were the 15th best team in the nation, actually, in rebounding. They would hold their opponent to that one bad shot. Florida averaged five blocks a game, discouraging teams from post-play or from driving to the lane when Florida was playing good defense. Florida did not force a lot of turnovers, and they did not get out in transition. They were predominantly a half-court team. Florida's transition defense also left much to be desired. But when Florida played well, their defense was really hard to score on. They had great individual defenders, and they were definitely getting the rebound when you missed a shot. So Florida's biggest strength on defense was their great individual defenders who had size and length, and their biggest weakness is that they played inconsistent defense with no help and poor transition D. Now let's look at Florida's offense versus Duke's defense. Florida averaged 80 points a game, which was 11th best out of 337 schools. They played a lot of three out, two in, meaning three players on the perimeter and two players in the post. But Florida played it in the old school way of three out, two in, where you had a big on either block and they did not move out of the way. They did not go to the high post to give the other player room or space to operate. Even back in the 60s and 70s, UCLA had a high post offense where they would bring a big out to the to around the free throw line around the elbow and leave a big in the post to be able to operate with some space. But Florida didn't do that for the most part, but it definitely worked for them. They had four NBA caliber big men who were more or less interchangeable. They all could score in the post, and they all were capable passers, especially Chris Richard. Though they played a lot of three-out-two-in, Florida would also bring a big up-to-set-a-high screen, usually Joakim Noah. But they weren't setting a screen to run pick-and-roll like you see in most offenses. When you see a big screening for a guard, they're usually going to roll to the basket and look for the pass from that guard. That's not what Florida was doing they set the pick to free up the guard to make a great entry pass into the post to the other big who was on the low block. Or the pick would free up the guard for a three. Rarely was Florida running pick and roll. Florida's offense was pretty simple and straightforward, but it worked. They were going to pound you on the inside with those four NBA big men, and if you sagged to help, they were going to kick it out to shooters who were going to scorch you from three. And when Florida was hitting their threes, they were an extremely hard team to beat. Torian Green shot 40% from three, and Lee Humphrey, the shooting guard, shot 45% from three. So yeah, when they were on, Florida was a handful. And though Florida had a fairly basic offense, they did show the ability to make adjustments when needed. In the UCLA game, in the NCAA tournament, UCLA played a stifling form of defense that really gave Florida fits early in the game. They fronted the post to deny entry passes and then immediately doubled if the ball did get into the post. On the perimeter, Darren Collison would harass Torian Green and make any entry pass extremely difficult. When Florida would run their high screen game with Joakim Noah up top, UCLA would double the ball and not allow for any easy passes. So the way that Florida adjusted was to set a number of screens in the post. So one big would screen for the other big, a cross screen, which would make it hard to double one of the post players. So even though they had a fairly simple offense, Florida was able to make adjustments. The biggest issue with Florida's offense was that they turned the ball over at a high rate. Against UCLA in the tournament, they turned it over 16 times. Against Oregon, 18 times. And in the regular season loss to Tennessee, they turned it over 20 times. So Florida's biggest strength was their NBA caliber big men who could punish you in the post, but could also pass. Their biggest weakness was their turnovers. Now let's look at Duke's defense. Duke allowed 73 points a game defensively, which was 139th out of 298 teams. But this number is a bit misleading. Duke played at a relatively fast pace. They were not like the UNLV running rebels of that time or the Arkansas 40 minutes of hell at that time or or even Loyola Marymount. But they did like to play with pace. So in doing that, you tend to give up more points. Duke had an outstanding defense. They played an aggressive man-to-man in the half court where Bobby Hurley would pressure the ball handler while the wings would deny the next pass to the closest offensive player. Duke would look to force long passes, skip passes, and then jump the passing lane to get steals. Duke forced 18 turnovers a game. And once they forced a turnover, they were outrunning in transition. Duke was an opportunistic running team. And with Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill, Thomas Hill, Antonio Lang, Christian Leitner on the break, this Duke team was it, was it was it was almost impossible to stop them. Occasionally Duke would show a base 2-3 zone or a 2-3 matchup zone, but for the most part, Duke played man to man. If they went 2-3, It was usually for a possession or two, and then they went back to -to man-to-man. When Bobby Hurley was out with the broken foot, they played more 2-3 zone because they didn't have the same type of ball pressure that Bobby Hurley gave them. But even then, they played majority man-to-man defense. In defending the post, Duke would either front the post player with immediate help coming from the weak side, or they'd play behind the post player inviting an entry pass and have an off-ball defender jump the passing lane to get a steal. They used both of these strategies against Shaquille O'Neal in the LSU game and was able to largely neutralize Shaq, at least enough for them to get the victory. Duke usually didn't press full court, but when they did, it would usually be a 1-2-1-1 press. And they didn't actually force a lot of turnovers with that press, but it did give opponents something to think about and prevent them from getting into a comfort zone, getting into their offense easily. Duke played with excellent man defense principles. They were always helping and recovering while forcing teams into turnovers. This was most evident in the St. John's game, where for the first half of that game, they completely shut St. John's down. Malik Seeley was a non-factor in the first half, and he worked hard to get every shot he got. But Duke showed how stifling their defense could be against this top 10 team. I think uh, St. John's was ranked number seven, and they, they completely shut this offense down. So Duke's biggest strength on defense was their ability to force turnovers and to play with solid, fundamental man-to-man principles. Their biggest weakness, I'm still thinking about that one. I'll get back to you. (laughs) This was a really good defense. Now, let's look at intangibles. The biggest intangible for either team is Duke and their ability to get to the free throw line. Duke averaged 22 made free throws a game while their opponents went to the line 16 times a game whereas Florida went to the line 23 times a game and made 16. So basically Duke is starting out with a six point advantage. So we've looked at the team's talent, we've looked at offenses versus defenses, and we've looked at the intangibles. Now it's time to play the game. As the game begins, Duke plays their pressure man defense. Bobby Hurley harassing Torian Green with Duke's wings denying passes to Lee Humphrey, and Corey Brewer. In the post, Duke is waiting on entry passes. With Florida playing with their two bigs so close together, a Duke help defender can easily jump from one block to the other to intercept an entry pass. Duke is forcing turnovers and getting out in transition, very similar to Florida's game against Tennessee, and for Duke, similar to their game against St. John's. With Duke's propensity to score in transition and Florida lacking the ability to stop them, Duke races out to an early lead. In Florida's game against UCLA, UCLA fronted the post and denied all entry passes, stifling Florida's offense. Florida made the adjustment by running cross screens. So having one big on the weak side set a screen for the big on the strong side. This allowed a big to be open to receive the entry pass without being fronted. Florida makes a similar adjustment in this game. With the ball able to be entered into the post, now Florida has an advantage. With Duke mixing up fronting the post and double teaming the post with jumping passing lanes, Florida has to adjust again. And again, similar to what they did in the UCLA game, when the post double team came, they made a cross court pass to an open shooter on the wing. It's in this way that Florida is able to get back into the game, bringing the score within 10. However, Florida is a turnover prone team and Duke is prone to turn you over. So Duke continues to turn Florida over and continues to get out in transition. In the half court, Duke is able to capitalize on individual matchups, like Thomas Hill being guarded by Lee Humphrey, for instance. Or similar to the Kansas game, of slashing forward, doing damage to Florida's defense the way Julian Wright did. Grant Hill causing havoc to Florida's defense. So even though Florida brought the game close momentarily, Duke's ability to turn over Florida and their ability to score in the half court with Christian Leitner being able to score from the perimeter and Grant Hill able to dissect Florida from both the mid-range and driving to the basket and Duke's ability to hit threes, they pull away from Florida once again. Ultimately, Duke proves to be the superior team using offensive versatility and stellar defense to defeat Florida 82 to 69. So why did Duke win this matchup? The main reason is that Duke's MO is forcing turnovers and getting out in transition. And Florida's M.O. is turning the ball over and not stopping teams in transition. Florida's inconsistent defense in the half court dooms them against a team as versatile as Duke. Because even if Florida is able to stop Duke's post play, their inability to stop Duke's play on the perimeter, either driving or shooting, is an Achilles heel that Florida just can't overcome. Additionally, Duke is used to playing against great big men. They played against and defeated Shaquille O'Neal, Chris Webber, Jawan Howard, and Eric Montrose. So any advantage in the post that Florida may have had, Duke has experienced it and has figured out how to beat it. Ultimately, this is just a bad stylistic matchup for the 2007 Florida Gators. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Versus. Let me know what you think. In the comments are by email. The email and Twitter are in the show notes. Like, rate, review, subscribe, and let me know which matchups you would like to see on future episodes of Versus. Can't wait!